guest today is someone we have wanted on our podcast for a long time, Matt Boers from the Wall Street Journal. And for those of our listeners who follow Sovereign Debt, his name is a familiar one. And it is familiar to many of us because he was part of the Wall Street Journal team that unpacked the scandal of the hunger bonds uh, now a couple of years ago, but it was one of the biggest stories in the sovereign debt market. So we're thrilled to have Matt here with us. He is, uh, for his work on that, something of a hero. Uh, but our focus today is going to be on a topic that he brought up to us uh, in part as a function of those conversations about the hunger bonds, and that's about ESG investment. And Matt, if we could begin by talking about this new popularity of ESG, we'd be most grateful, uh, in part because there seems to be so much enthusiasm for, let's just call it a sort of ethical investing uh, uh, from various parts of the industry. And this is not an industry that I normally think of as particularly concerned with anything ethical. So if you would begin uh, by telling us what the hell is going on and have people all of a sudden become really ethical or is just just another uh, sham, scam, uh, cheap talk uh, occasion, we'd be most grateful and welcome. Well, thank you, me too. And I, I am actually really happy and excited to be talking about this with you. But before I start talking, I want you on a Zoom call with my kids, maybe later today, to explain to them that their dad is a hero. Maybe if you can make it superhero, that would be fantastic. Um, but um, that out of the way, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I find, you know, as you know, um, a long-time emerging markets debt reporter. Um, I was really soft spot in my heart for emerging markets. And um, so that's sort of where I've been for, you know, 15, 20 years. And, and over the last three or four years, I've been writing a lot more about this thing called ESG, right? Uh, which means different things to different people. Um, and you know, as you um, intimated, has some credibility issues, uh, right? Um, but uh, is it's legitimate, you know, it's legitimate in the sense that it is now a multi-trillion dollar asset class, right? Um, when you include all the, you know, investment uh, vehicles, funds that are, um, that have ESG attached to them, and then all the securities that have um, ESG shades Right. Um, so what what is it first? Uh, it's an acronym. It stands for environmental, social and governance. Um, those are principles that uh, are applied in the investment process. Um, it's interesting because it's not a discrete asset class. It's more a type of investment that gets layered across every single type of financial market there is right now. There are uh, ESG stocks and stock funds, there are ESG bonds and bond funds, there's 
structured finance that's ESG, municipal finance that's ESG. You have commodity um, trades that are ESG in nature, right? Um, uh, for example, carbon capture is becoming something that's very interesting to people, and that's a that's a an ES, It's becoming a commodity, um, and it's ESG. And so, I, I think that, you know there's two questions here. One is is this for real? And I think there's no question about that, right? Just because of the dollars that are at play, it's definitely for real. The question is then how effective are these vehicles at creating the putative putative impact that is associated with them, right? Um, so for example, does a green bond actually result in a greening, uh, a, a net greening of the world um, or the municipality or the company footprint, what have you? Um, and I would say in general, yes, but a lot of times no, right? And that's the issue of greenwashing that a lot, you know, a lot of my colleagues and um, journalists elsewhere have written about. Um, so, you know, I would I would say that um, generally, the answer is it's a real thing. Sometimes it's a little fudgy, and um, I hope that that answers your question. I you know one of the things that I find interesting is like why this has happened because as you said, you know, and as I believe as a very cynical reporter, um, Wall Street and the asset management industry don't have. I don't think moral or ethical um, vectors in their decision-making process, right? Um, so, so that's a, can, can I, let me just interject there for a second because that's, Me Too, as we all know, is a, is a deeply, deeply cynical, black-hearted man who, who <laughs> always finds a way to, to um, sort of extract the negative out of a situation. But, but your response was more optimistic in some way than I, than I had expected. Um, so one of the things that, I'm, that I'd like to follow up on and just get you to talk about a little bit more is the premium, if there is a premium that investors pay for green bonds and other securities that are tied to some commitment to do good more broadly. So um, is there a premium? I, I, you've written a little bit about it and, and suggested that there is. So um, what do we know about that? And then more broadly, why do we think the, the investor community is willing to pay for it? So yes, there's a premium and there wasn't for a long time, right? So first, so listeners understand the premium is, um, it's actually, uh, it was positive for a long time. And so what that meant was that when a, you know, let's say country X issues a sovereign bond, if it was going to be a green bond, which is a bond that specifically um, in the bond document states will be used for particular uh, projects, let's say it's um, transitioning the electrical grid in that country, right? Um, and then there would be a third party that would be engaged to verify that the proceeds were indeed used for that purpose. Um, initially, there were, the yield on that bond would have been higher uh, than that, country, uh, that country's other obligations uh, that were being issued at that time in the market. And what we saw was that started in the last, I mean, granted, this is, this is a market that's only really existed for a decade. But in the last couple of years, the premium has gone negative 
So um, particularly corporations, but in some cases, countries can now issue green debt uh, at a slight, uh, slightly lower yield than the rest of their yield curve. Um, and when I say slightly, I mean slightly, like it's on average around three basis points. But when you're talking, you know, billions or tens of billions or hundreds of billions of issuance, that adds up over time. Um, and so, yeah. So, so it's not the kind of premium, when I hear you say a few basis points, then my hopes that the current market is financing massive investments in decarbonization and other climate friendly policies that my hopes for that are kind of dashed and i'm i hear sort of the spirit of me too want me to ask cynically like what what are investors buying are they are they because like the money's fungible the government could be doing these projects anyway are they buying the the sort of pr benefit of affiliating themselves with the some sort of supposed green objectives or is there actual new work new um uh, new investments new infrastructure designed to tackle environmental problems that's really being financed here okay well so to answer that um and i just want to say this now and hopefully you guys will edit it or fix it later but i think it's really me too we, we need to talk about the issue of like you know the accountability, right? And the fact that there's no default if the issuers don't um, use the proceeds for what they're supposed to do, because that's a really you know, interesting question that most people in the green bond world don't even think about. Um, but anyway, that said, I think um, to answer your question, Mark, you, you have to look at what what's driving this, um, both from the investor perspective and from the issuer perspective. Um, and there, there's three main drivers currently, and there's a there, but there's another one that's going to become very influential that's that's coming down the pike. So the first is just the demand from asset owners, right? Um, these are the pensions, insurers, foundations, charities, um, who have decided that, um, and and individuals, right, who have decided that they want uh, a new criteria in their portfolios and they want that to be the environmental impact of their investments, right? That is happening. It's just, it, it's happening much more rapidly than uh, had been expected. Um, and that is the principal reason. It's not out of um, some moralistic, um, you know, kind of spiritual revelation that's happening at BlackRock or Vanguard or, um, you know, Alliance Bernstein or any of these firms. It's the fact that their clients are having this you know, whatever this transformation is, um, I guess we need to talk to social scientists or something to understand why that's happening, or maybe just like look at what happened in Texas last month. I think that probably explains a lot, right? The environmental events that are happening all over the world with increased frequency, but the clients of these firms have made a decision, right? And so the asset management industry is just moving in response to that. And it is a very so Adam Smith, um, um, response. Matt, um, just I, I'm, I'm going to uh, bring us back to the hunger bonds and the idea of market reaction uh, and that investors care. Uh, and Mark has already outed uh, my uh, cynicism. So let's, let's just go down the cynical path. First, 
you know, three basis points. And I, I was looking at some of the studies. Uh, in fact, some of the studies that you cited in your wonderful piece, and one of them now has been through peer review and uh, has been published. Uh, and th that one, the one that looks at municipal bonds, concludes in the end, you know, there's really no greenium if you control for enough factors. On the other hand, uh, you know, the other studies that you cited are very credible. And I, I think the name of the gentleman is Ron Kali, who you talk about, mm -hmm. He's sort of a, a legendary figure uh, from my, uh, at least from the telling of my economist friends. So they're like, yeah, he, he's the real deal. And if he found something, we got to take it seriously. But the, the, the pre greenium is, you know, tiny. Uh, and when I've done these empirical studies, if I get something under five basis points, my economist uh, critiques, uh, 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 critics are always like, ah, you know, this is just noise. It's just too small uh, to be real. And then the question I think they would ask is, well, the robustness check on uh, whether investors really have uh, grown a heart is are, is there, are they making these kinds of distinctions for other bad stuff? And the, among the other bad stuff we know about are sort of despotic leaders. Uh, the, and this is what gets us back to hunger bonds. And if we look at the penalty that was imposed on uh, Goldman Sachs's uh, hunger bonds purchase, you know, there was a big penalty initially as you documented, but that largely seems to have disappeared. And uh, if I look more broadly about sort of quasi-despotic leaders, uh, you know, I'm no big fan of uh, Donald Trump, uh, um, but there are lots of these people around the world. The market doesn't seem to be penalizing countries with bad leaders, nor for, the, for that matter, do they seem to be penalizing sort of truly idiotic leaders who are doing bad things to their people with their COVID strategies. Brazil comes to mind. Uh, you know, of course the US has, uh, you know, we have also done idiotic things. So that it just like, are the, it, I find it so implausible that uh, the, these investors all of a sudden can care about the environment, but then they don't care about all these other social things. Okay, so there's a lot, you just said a lot of things, but the one thing that I would, that's occurring to me as I'm listening to you is that, is that neither issuers nor investors are monolithic. Like an individual portfolio manager could be monolithic, although most large portfolios now have you know, multiple portfolio managers and analysts. And you know, BlackRock, for example, and I'm, I'm picking on them just because they're the biggest, right? Um, no other reason than that. I have no view on their you know, commitment to ESG or what have you. Um, but they have literally, you know, hundreds of funds, right? And then they have special, they have separately managed accounts and they have different divisions within BlackRock or, you know, whichever asset manager firm. And then at the issuer level, so Brazil is a really good example. And we'll go back to like the morality play in invest, um, in investors, but I'm glad you brought up Brazil. So yes, Bolsonaro, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of issues with his, um, you know, his approach to democracy, his response to COVID, and his response to environmental risk. Um, and that can be a catalyst for green bond issuance. Um, and we we're going to talk about this later anyhow. Um, but 
you know, there's this new variant of uh, green issuance, um, which is uh, it's 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 sort of impact linked. So there's different ways people call it sustainably linked bonds or emotion, emissions linked bonds. But there are these bonds where rather than um, than pegging uh, the um, identity, for lack of better word, of the bond on the pro on a particular project um, and use of proceeds, what you're doing is you're pegging the interest rate of the bond on an outcome, right? Um, usually the reduction of emissions to hit a certain target over a period of time. Um, and so the bond um, interest rate can go up or down based on the success of the issuer um, in achieving that target, right? So presumably they don't hit the target, then the coupon steps up. They do hit the target, it either stays the same or it can actually ratchet lower. Uh, and so last summer, I got a call from you know, a public relations person that was involved in a deal for uh, one of uh, Brazil's largest pulp and paper companies. And this was on the back of, as you remember, the, we, we all saw those terrible pictures of the Amazon burning and these satellite photos. And um, it was, to a certain extent, fortuitous timing. Susan, this, this company, Susano, had been working on the bond for quite a while. Um, but uh, in, I think it was August or September, they issued a bond that was wildly oversubscribed. It paid, the coupon was, I can't remember how many, it was, it was significantly tighter than any bond that Susano had ever issued before. Um, and other US, so it's interesting because it was an emerging market company, right? It was the first Latin American company to do this. Since then, there've been a lot of developed market companies that are doing the same thing. So um, yes, the Brazilian sovereign is perhaps um, not acting in the best case, um, but that doesn't mean that an emerging market investor who has a green agenda um, can't buy, can't find assets that will satisfy that agenda in, an emer in that emerging market. Um, and then there was another thing I wanted, you, you were talking about like have, okay, so like the hardcore guys that bought the hunger bonds, right? Or that like buy Argentina and then stay in it, right? Or that bought Ecuador, like, I'm not going to name names here, but you know who they are. Um, those guys aren't going to change, I don't think. Um, what they they apply ESG, particularly the the governance part of ESG, right? So they they apply that um, in their investments, but it's not in a way of saying I'm not going to buy a despotic uh, government's bond. It's saying I'm going to, in my pricing negotiation on either a secondary market trade or buying a new bond, I am going to um, ding that issuer and say, I need however many basis points more to buy this bond um, of yield. So, and I, I know this because I, I, I speak to these guys. And um, however, what I would say, and this is about the, um, whatever the opposite of monolithic is, nature of a lot of these organizations as they get bigger. So there's a, there's a fund manager that I know, he loves Belarus. He and I argue about this all the time, particularly last year when um, uh, there was a lot of protest and you know violent crackdowns in Belarusia. You know, I said, "How can you justify still buying these bonds?" And he says, "I like the yield, and this guy's not going anywhere. His belief is Lukashenko is not going anywhere, in part because of the relationship with Russia." However, I happen to know that in another arm of this, um, the same asset management company that's very different from the portfolio that I'm talking about, they have made large investments in ESG. And so I think over time, the culture of that firm is changing, although 
the investment approach of this particular portfolio manager for the moment hasn't. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying that 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 not every, every portfolio is somewhat idiosyncratic, even within a firm. So Matt, we should probably go to break, but I wonder if um, uh, on our way there, you can give us just a brief bit of insight into how you think the transition to a Biden administration is going to affect U.S. policy here. I know the Trump administration was, in some respects, quite hostile to ESG initiatives, even to the point of trying to discourage um, investment decisions from from being made on those grounds as opposed to purely financial grounds. What, what are we expecting to see from the Biden administration in the near future? And then maybe we can um, uh, we can take a quick break after that. Sure. Um, so what you're referring to is the Department of Labor's uh, adoption last year of a rule that said that 401ks, so retirement funds, couldn't uh, make investments uh, that were specifically based on ESG principles unless they were economically indistinguishable uh, from other investments, which had a chilling effect uh, throughout the asset management industry, not just in pension. Um, my understanding is that the Biden administration is, is you know, in the process of or going to roll that back. Um, and then not only that, but uh, there is an expectation among asset managers that we are going to have a SEC that is much more um, pres prescriptive uh, in more of the European vein where just recently, uh, this month actually, uh, there were new regulations that were put in place where asset management firms that advertise uh, a investment product as ESG have to do a much more uh, concrete job of explaining exactly how green the fund is, right? Um, so not all funds will be uh, treated equally. Um, and they're going to have to do a lot more disclosure of their investments. Um, on, and on the issuer side, there's also going to be a requirement uh, for much more robust disclosure of emissions emissions reduction plans, you know, scope one, scope two, scope three emission effects, which are the first, you know, first effects, second order effects, and third order effects. Um, so you're going to see, uh, I, I think, uh, a much bigger push for disclosure um, uh, on both the issuer and the investor side. And then there's this other, um, and this is a little bit conspiracy theorish, but um, I don't think it's that far-fetched. There's an idea that uh, you know, central banks seem to have um, adopted quantitative easing as a much more frequently used tool, right? Um, that it doesn't have to be an end of the world situation for a central bank to start intervening. So quantitative easing is when you use the bank, the central bank balance sheet to purchase securities in the market. Um, and I anticipate it'll start with the ECB, but it'll eventually spread to the Fed where you're gonna see uh, developed market and potentially emerging market central banks actually purchasing ESG securities. Of, they would have to be a high enough credit quality. And so uh, when we were talking about the greenium before, I think that's gonna have a, a further um, impact um, accentuating the greenium once we see public entities. And the reason that they're gonna do this, um, and then I'll wrap up on my diatribe here is, uh, that 
Um, we've been talking about sort of the uh, pull from the investment community that there's a much stronger demand for cap uh, for these types of investment. There's going to be uh, a, an even larger pull from the issuer standpoint because there's so much need for capital to make the energy transition. Um, and so as a result of that, the government's gonna to have to step in to push the borrowing costs down because the supply of these types of securities is gonna go off the charts. I mean, it's, we're talking trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Thanks, Matt. Let's take a very short break and then we can uh, come back to pick up with this in just a second. All right, uh, I am going to continue in my cynical vein, since uh, I don't really have any other vein, but uh, Matt and Mark, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit about the contract clauses, which seems appropriate since our podcast is clauses and controversies. Now, when I talk to our students in Sovereign Debt and ask them, how would you design a contract and specifically, how would you design a contract where a country is given an incentive uh, to behave well in terms of the environment? I think that their answer would be, if we've taught them properly, uh, that if the country fails to do what it's supposed to do, uh, we would have contract clauses that would allow the lenders to withdraw their money. I mean, this is what we do in the context of borrowers not meeting debt to GDP ratios or uh, not investing the money properly in the types of investments they're supposed to do. Uh, we would have an event of default. So I've looked at a bunch of these green bonds, at least the sovereign green bonds, and they don't have squat. They don't have anything basically ensuring that the promise is kept. And that makes me think, this is just bullshit. Like, you can't say that you're promising to do something if there's no mechanism to make sure you're doing it. And that's not even getting into the question of how the hell is BlackRock, assuming that BlackRock all of a sudden cares about the environment, uh, how the hell do they actually tell? Now, I also think they don't care, but if they did care and if there, was some, if there were some asset managers there who did care, how, how are they going to tell? They haven't set up any mechanisms in any of these instruments that actually provides adequate disclosure. And so I'll get to the, the sort of the Greek bond that I find particularly irritating a little later, but that's my question to the both of you, since I know um, uh, at least Mark disagrees with my portrayal of the contract perspective. But I'm going to let Matt answer first. Nice. I'm waiting for the sandbag, but um, I would, well, since I'm not a contract specialist, um, what I would suggest is that from the, in, I'm just going to give the investors the benefit of the doubt here. And I, this is partially based on conversations with investors. They do think, so you have to be clear. Yes, there would not be an event of default. However, um, there are third party con um, consultants uh, and environmental specialists who are paid for by the issuer 
um, who are monitoring. So, no, 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 I, I can't help but interrupt. Third party consultants, that's more money being wasted. I mean, who Great. believes any of these third party consultants? Well, so, okay. That's, um, that is a separate issue. And I, I think it's true, right? I, one of the big criticisms of ESG is that it's basically a fee making machine for Wall Street for these, you know, the, the consultants, the data providers, the um, electronic, the analytic um, uh, services providers that so yes to all of that. It's true. This is a land grab. Okay, let's, let's not, let's, let's, let's not um, be um, ignorant about it. The reason, one of the reasons that this um, is being talked about everywhere is because Wall Street wants it to be talked about everywhere and so do the asset managers because it gives them, the asset management industry and the banking industry have been in a slump for over a decade since the great financial crisis. And so they see this as an opportunity to increase their revenues and their bottom line. No doubt, I don't argue with you about that. Me too. On the other hand, project finance, Right, which we, which every country and most corporations have an urgent need for right now, um, is right now a very rarefied, specialized part of the market. You have to be a large institution to be able to have the capacity to be able to do the analysis, to invest in these long-term projects, right, um, and to know how to price those large-term projects and to know how to price the risk in those long-term projects, right. So, um, what green bonds do is to a certain extent, they democratize that, right? They create um, a, by the, in, the, the, all the cost of analyzing all that risk gets internalized by the issuer, right? For the reason that, that um, it meets their policy goals. And if there's a greenium, it also lowers their borrowing costs. Um, and for the investors who wouldn't otherwise be able to invest in something like this, um, they get, whether it's, a, whether it's justified or not, they get a degree of comfort from these third party consultants who are gonna verify that use of proceeds are, are used appropriately. And so um, that is the counter argument. Um, and uh, are there bad actors here who are gonna use the funds? Yeah, absolutely. And guess what? The premium, there will be no greenium on that bond, right? So if, you know, like Lee likes to say, Ruritania, right? If Ruritania has a track record of screwing bondholders, falsifying records in their GDP numbers, for example, like you know, uh, certain countries, then um, then the the yield on that green bond is going to be like eleven percent, right? And so the market is just pricing in the risk of them not using the proceeds as they say they're going to. So Matt, it sounds like, and me too's. Um, me Too's disagreement with me is maybe not as fundamental in some respects as as it sounded like. I think um, it's sort of a puzzle from my perspective why investors typically don't have the same kinds of rights on default um, in this context that we would expect in other contexts. That's different in the disagreement that he and I had sort of about whether they have any rights at all. Um, it's different from having zero rights. And it's sort of curious to think of what the right remedy would be here for an investor who bought one of these bonds and was disappointed at the, let's say the level of enthusiasm the the government showed for investing in in some environmental project. But so it sounds like we we all think that the primary reason why in governments keep their promises to the extent they do can be broken down into like maybe there's some third party verification and some reputational 
consequence to not keeping their promise? I mean, is that is that it, do you think? Is that the primary driver here? Or are there other mechanisms in play that um, help ensure that governments actually commit to doing the projects that they're supposed to do? You know, I, I would say that's, you know, that is the same thesis for any investment in emerging markets, right? There's always this, um, you know, the, the before a default, right? You guys know this, before a default, um, the long only money, the guys that bought the bonds at par and all the Wall Street banks that cater to them will say, well, country X will never default because if they do, they know that they'll, you know, their borrowing costs will go up. Um, and then, it, uh, and, and so they, they, they won't default. And then it goes to, well, if they do default, they would never give us like a 40% haircut because they know that if they did that, um, they'd never be able to come back to the market. And then, you know, a year down the line, they do a restructuring with 40% haircut, right? Um, and, and, then, and then six months after that, the country comes to the market with some hundred year bond um, at like a ridiculously cheap interest rate. So um, the, you know, I, I guess what I would say is, I, I, I think uh, this is somewhat of an academic question, right? Um, you know, by their nature, emerging market countries are more likely to, uh, of a certain credit rating are more likely to default. Um, and there's a higher risk premium on them. And so their green bonds will also have a higher risk premium on them. But um, I think categorizing the green bonds as some way contractually inferior because they don't have a default clause tied to the use of proceeds. Um, I don't know that it, it seems to miss the point. So Matt, um, one more question on this before I'm hoping we can talk about this sort of the popularity of the debt swap idea that seems to be building on the shoulders of ESG. But the one more question, and I think that you had actually brought this up in one of our initial conversations on this, but please correct me if I'm wrong. So while the contracts don't have events of default uh, or you know, sort of adequate, in my mind, uh, monitoring provisions, what I did notice in at least one bond, and I think you've seen it in other bonds, uh, is that some of the bonds, and I'm talking specifically about one Greek uh, state-controlled bond that recently was issued, and the fact that it's a Greek state-controlled bond uh, itself gives me the heebie-jeebies, but uh, they say, look, um, we're going to issue this sort of green or environmentally friendly bond, and if we don't behave well, we'll just pay you a higher interest rate. So it's, it's the, almost in some ways the opposite of what you would want, which is they're withdrawing the money if you don't behave well. Here, if they don't behave well, they just pay you more. And uh, I, again, I am just puzzled. Why are they behaving so weirdly here with respect to things they want? And this again seems to suggest to me that the incentives are a little different here. Question mark. Right. Um... Well, this is sort of to, toward, towards what Mark was saying is, you know, um, is there, you know, okay, if it's an iterated game, right, is there an incentive for the borrower to behave well um, in order to influence future outcomes, right? Um, and what you're saying is, I think, and you can correct me if I'm misinterpreting, that they're actually 
um, th this new type of structure actually anticipates misbehavior, right? Um, and builds in um, padding um, yes. that allows for that, right? Exactly. That's, that's, we should all be freaked out by that. Well, are, should we or should we just say, thank God the market is finally acknowledging that issuers are going to do things that they, do, they say they're not going to do um, and that we have a pricing mechanism that allows for that. Um, I mean, it's similar to, I mean, in some ways it's analogous to like GDP linked bonds, right? Um, uh, which are used in restructurings. Um, so um, here's what I would say about this. I think the market likes this better the sustainability or the outcome linked bonds than the green bonds. And, you know, it never occurred to me until you brought up the issues of the deficiencies in the contracts, but maybe that's why, right? Um, maybe they like it better because it, 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 um, it sort of sidesteps that, um, uh, that gap in the contract. And it says um, very clearly, you know, it turns it into a pricing mechanism. Um, and now whether or not that the thing is that it, it doesn't, it, it has to step up and step down, right? There needs to be a carrot and a stick. And hopefully like, you know, you were saying like if it's less than five basis points then it doesn't matter from an academic perspective, that may be true, but depending on what your credit rating is, five basis points actually, if you are a CFO of a company and potentially I guess a treasurer of a, of a, of a country, um, five basis points can make a lot of difference. Um, and so, I don't know if that sort of answers your question, um, but I think like I think what I think your instincts are correct, right? And I think the market recognizes that, and that's why they like this instrument. Um, not because it uh, encourages misbehavior on the part of the issuer, but it, because it acknowledges the reality that you're pointing out um, that it's going to happen. Well, and I don't know what the right contracting form is here. I mean, these are relatively new instruments. It's not obvious to me that the right thing from the investor's perspective even is to say that, look, if I get wind that you're not investing the money in the projects that I had wanted, then I've got the right to accelerate and demand the full principle now. I mean, I don't find it that puzzling that this is not an event of default. And the I mean, this is a, a penalty for non-compliance, which is what you would, what you would uh, ideally want uh, in at least some form. I guess, um, sorry, to, to, to take us towards the end, Matt, can we, you were talking a little bit about the restructuring context, and I wanted to follow up on that because um, that is one context in which um, I think recently people have been trying to sort of leverage both ESG and maybe COVID to a lesser extent, kind of weirdly, in suggesting that um, a promising restructuring model would be for investors to give somewhat larger haircuts than they otherwise would on the, and in return, get in a, a commitment from the restructurer that it was going to devote some of that extra fiscal space that it was getting to environmental projects. And, and I mean, these, this sort of idea builds on these old debt for nature swaps. I, I guess I, I'm trying to, to get a sense of your reaction to these proposals. Is there really enough of a linkage here that it makes sense to think that 
better restructuring terms might be on offer for governments that are willing to commit to environmental objectives? Right now, no. There's no way in hell, <laughs> honestly. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that the, the most recent example of this, which is the Seychelles, their blue bond, um, the debt that was restructured was public debt. It was public sector debt. I think it was Paris Club debt or um, maybe some other um, uh, bilateral or multilateral debt. It wasn't commercial debt that was restructured. And the reason that there's, there's a huge problem with this, which is that I can't think of any asset manager in the world that would be dealing, willing to do, to do this, to restructure debt um, with a larger haircut um, in order to take, uh, say, a green bond, because they would be subject to so many liability lawsuits based on their breach of fiduciary duty that it, it could I mean, potentially put them out of business. I just, I just don't see how, given how um, the, 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 the firms that actually own most of the bonds that we're talking about here um, are set up, I, don't, I just don't see how it's possible. However, I do have some ideas on how that could change and make it possible in the future. Well, well, please, and before, uh, on our way out, why, I'd like to hear some of these ideas. Uh, well, um, I, was, I was hoping Me Too would come in and, and give us more of his cynic, cynical stuff, and, and maybe he'll do that at the end. But um... No, I, I want to be, I want us to end on the optimistic note, and I think you're telling us the way that this could work could actually be a good optimistic note, because I don't want to be black-hearted. I, I want to be pure. I just, I look out at the world and I think, no, you, you haven't gotten better. You've gotten worse, people. Well, so in this case, it's just that they, they haven't really, um, there hasn't been a lot of motivation on the buy side to, to support this type of mechanism, right? And, um, you know, while there may be, so while the World Bank and the IMF might be thrilled about this, I mean, remember, like, remember the SDRM, there's a lot of great ideas out there um, that um, make sense in the context of multilaterals or the public sector that are just, um, not realistic or practical in the private sector, right? And that's where most of the debt is held. But there, okay, so that actually brings me, there, there's two ideas. One that I just uh, took from, I, I found this report online, Greenbelt and Road Initiative Center. Um, so they're talking about um, the Chinese initiative to you know, subsidize uh, transport around the world um, by uh, lending to a lot of emerging market countries. So there's a public center entity, right? Or public sector entity, the Chinese government, uh, which is one of the largest creditors to emerging markets in the world, right? And they don't have the um, uh, fiduciary duty risk that a, a normal bond fund has. So I think it's entirely plausible um, that for diplomatic reasons um, or potentially geopolitical reasons, um, as the crisis, as the the global environmental crisis worsens, we could see uh, China, which restructures these debts all the time for political reasons, um, might see some real value in restructuring them in a public way, which it hasn't done yet for green debt, right? So that, 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 that seems very plausible to me. It's cynical, me too, um, that, that I'm not saying that um, this would be done for necessarily um, ethical reasons, but it's, it, seems, it seems reasonable to me. Hope, and then, hope about outcomes that lets us keep our cynicism is even better than hope that requires us to give <laughs> it up. 
There you go. Eat your cake and have it too. So, but what about the commercial sector? How could that change? So I've spoken to a number of um, parties who are trying to get deals and have been trying for years to get deals similar to the Seychelles off the ground in other parts of the world. And there's been, you know, one is getting the countries to agree. The other is getting the markets to cooperate. So having the bonds trade down to a, a level that's economically feasible so that this ethically minded entity can then go and purchase the bonds um, and then restructure them um, into some sort of green instrument at a larger haircut, right? Um, so my question is, what if, you know, uh, asset manager X that has a, you know, impact fund or a, you know, a, a fund that is specifically um, oriented to ESG uh, principles, and what if they earmark some of their money uh, to go into the secondary market when there's a restructuring coming up for, they'd have to identify countries that have, you know, bio resources that need to be conserved or should be conserved, et cetera. Um, but basically combining private sector money with right now, it's mostly NGOs and nonprofits who are trying to do these uh, debt for nature swaps. But if you, as ESG funds get bigger, as the assets get bigger, and they're looking for more creative ways to have impact, they could allocate funds to, and they could actually do this internally and thought of that, but you could do internal purchases where an ESG vehicle buys the debt at a price that the original holder, it's at least comparable to where the market is, right? And they have to make their own legal checks to make sure that they're not, um, being preferential to one client over the other. And then that buyer becomes a commercial buyer that does have a built-in um, ESG motivation, which would then allow them to restructure the debt um, into some sort of um, new green bond. So I don't know if that made, did that make sense to you guys? Um, that was just a thought I had. It does make sense, I think. I um. I am not quite as filled with optimism as I had hoped um, <laughs> in the sense that, to be honest, I think I, I want, I have somewhat unfair expectations. I would like for, to come out of this conversation with the belief that we are going to see truly mammoth funding for decarbonization and for carbon capture and removal and all kinds of things, and that we're going to see it yesterday. Um, but that's probably a, just an unrealistic expectation on my part. Um, nevertheless, um, maybe in six months, we can have you back and we can talk about how we were all wrong. And this moment was a turning point. Um, <laughs> this podcast was a turning point. This podcast point. was, that, a, that well, yeah. Um, <laughs> we, when we option the rights to the podcast, it's probably going to be this episode that, that um, for sure. For sure. Thank you so I much would love for to come um, back and do that. Thanks, Matt.